Yes, let's go. 
space. I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy day, my anger holds within the veils. Long Christ of Salem, and all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Covenant is support me in the willing time. When all around my soul is great, he then is all my hope and stay. On Christ and solid rock I stand, all underground is sinking sand, all underground is sinking sand. of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace, because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Instead of simply admitting that he was wrong in his actions and repent, Saul doubled down in his pride and stubbornness. Saul knew what God had instructed him to do and was without a doubt directly disobedient. Samuel, just like Phineas, son of Eleazar, did in Numbers 25, took matters into his own hand to keep the people from being severely punished. He did what any good man who followed and trusted God would do. He killed Agag, the king of the Amalekites. Now, this whole situation did not please Samuel. When he was told that God was going to remove Saul, he grieved over it. Remember, Samuel had been meeting regularly with Saul, trying to teach him what he needed to know about being a godly king. But since Saul would not be in this position because of his rejection of God, 
And because Saul was not repentant about his sins, they have not seen each other since this time. Roughly a year has passed since Samuel and Saul went their separate ways. Obviously, Saul did not care whether Samuel came to speak it to him or not. Let's pick back up with 1 Samuel 16, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have selected a king for myself among his sons. Samuel, from the time he was born, he was raised as a man of God. He was a prophet, a priest, and a judge to the people. He was well-respected and adored by all. At one point in his life, the people told him he was, going to, he was getting too old to be the leader of the nation and wanted him to give them a king. God gave them what they wanted, a person who would be a figurehead and a warrior for them. Someone who they could see and touch and show the other nations around who their king was. It was a carnal desire that Israel had, so God appointed them a carnal king, Saul. He looked good and he had the image of a king, but he did not have the heart of a king. As time passed, this lack of heart towards God was revealed in Saul. 1 Samuel 15, verse 23 and 28. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. Samuel spent this year basically moping. He was greatly troubled and was probably questioning God where he was in this situation. I had spent all this time teaching and getting to know him. I thought everything would work out. Was this my fault? Did I do something wrong? Heck, when you really think about it, Samuel has spent more time grieving and being depressed for Saul than he did for his own two sons after God took them for their disobedience. God asked him, how long will you keep this up, this looking in the past? Get over it. You said yourself, back in 1 Samuel 15, 29, also the strength of Israel will not lie or change his mind. He is not a man that he should change his mind. Fill your horn with oil and go. Samuel knows what this is for, to anoint another king. And he knows where to go and who to see. Jesse the Bethlehemite. It's to be one of his sons. Jesse, in case you have forgotten, is the grandson of Boaz and Ruth. The last part of the verse, I have selected a king for myself. Depending on which translation of the Bible you're using, some of them actually says, God says, I have chosen myself a king. You pick what you desire, so I gave you Saul. What I chose will not be Saul 2.0. But the king I wanted to give you originally, if you'd have just been patient. 1 Samuel 16, verses 2 and 3. But Samuel said, How can I go? When Saul hears of it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, 
I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. You shall invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me the one whom I designate to you. Samuel told her, Samuel was afraid of Saul and what Saul might do if he found out what was going on. He would have remembered that the kingship was going to be given to someone better than him. Samuel was not too trusting in God to protect him so he could do the task God assigned him to do. When you look at this at a quick glance, one might think that God told him to lie to the people, but he doesn't. He takes a heifer with him and he is going to make a sacrifice. The first king was anointed for the people. You will anoint this king for me. I am going to appoint the king, the kind of king I want, one who is after my own heart. 1 Samuel 16, verse 4. So Samuel did what the Lord said and came to Bethlehem. And the elders of the city came trembling to meet him and said, Do you come in peace? The people don't know if Samuel is running from Saul, and therefore he's bringing trouble to them, or if he's there to pronounce a problem with the town and Saul is going to be coming to deal with it. It could have been something as simple as they heard what he had done to Agag. No one knows for sure. 1 Samuel 16, verses 5 through 7. He said, In peace, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. He also consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they entered, he looked at Eliab and he thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as a man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Samuel told the elders of the city to consecrate themselves and come to the feast. But he made a special effort to consecrate Jesse and his sons. He may have even told Jesse the real purpose behind his visit. In those days, a father would often parade his sons from oldest to youngest in front of someone important. Remember the firstborn? was to be given the special blessing and a double portion of the inheritance. The firstborn would have a great responsibility. They would be the head of the household when their father died. They would be in charge of leading the worship and choosing husbands for any unmarried sisters, things like that. So Jesse naturally brings out his oldest parts. If it was you, wouldn't you like to have your oldest son become king? or even president? Samuel makes the same mistake as the people did when God gave them Saul. He sees a tall, good-looking man with a solid presence and thinks to himself, wow, this has got to be the guy God wants me to anoint. He would be perfect, but God says, not so fast. Matthew 22, verses 27 and 28. Matthew 23, verses 27 and 28. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like the whitewashed tombs on which the outside appeared beautiful, but inside you are full of dead men's bones and uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy 
and lawlessness. I had rejected him. He may look the part, but like Saul, his heart is not right. See how easy it was for Samuel to fall into this trap? If a godly man like Samuel could have this happen to him, how much easier is it for us to do the same? We are all prone to it. We make, a, we make snap judgments about others by their outward appearance, and we shouldn't, but we do it so easily. The picture here of these heavily tattooed and pierced people, they don't necessarily look happy. They don't necessarily look thrilled at all. When we see these people, what is your immediate opinion? Are these people who you want to associate with? Wouldn't you be proud to be seen in public with? Would you feel comfortable around them? Someone who you would tell the world, these are my friends, and defend them if they are verbally attacked? Do you view these people as someone who needs to be saved? What about these two people? These people that are dressed in business suits, that are one looks like she's praying. When you see them, you probably think that they have great jobs and they have their lives all together. They could be family people, maybe even churchgoers. In all reality, we don't know anything about either of these people. You can't see their hearts. These two people that are heavily tattooed and pierced, they could be solid in their Christian walk. They could be youth leaders. They could be pastors. These business people, they could be abusing their spouses or children. They could be living a very simple life. And you would never know it because you can't see their heart. When we start to fall into this trap, thinking we know someone's heart, just remember what we're told in Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? We can't even trust our own hearts in certain matters. Jesse proceeded to bring each of his sons before Samuel, and none of them are chosen to be the next king. This had to be confusing for Samuel, since God said it would be one of Jesse's sons who would be anointed king, 1 Samuel 16, 11. And Samuel said to Jesse, are these all the children? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, and behold, he is tending the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring, for him, and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. Did you notice the strange thing with Jesse's response? Jesse doesn't even call David by his name. He just says, well, there's the youngest one who's out tending the sheep. He was not even important enough to call in from tending the flock to celebrate the feast with the others. Josephus believes that David about this time is about 10. Scholars and rabbis believe that David is about 15 to 16 years of age. And next week, we will see and understand why they think this. Samuel tells Jesse to send for him. They will not eat until he arrives. In my opinion, David was held in low regard by his own family. He was not mentioned by name. He was not invited to the feast to participate. And if Samuel had not told Jesse to send for him, he would not have been invited at all. 
Remember, I think that Samuel had told Jesse the real purpose behind his visit. Jesse did not make sure that David was even present. He had no respect, no honor, no privilege in the eyes of his family. Kind of reminds you of Joseph and his brothers. They did not treat him well. He was kind of a nuisance, kind of an hindrance to them. If I am right, isn't that really interesting? Now, I talked to a couple of different pastors and, and ran this by them to make sure that I had not been reading too much into the scripture. And they all agreed. David was not thought that well of in his family. Maybe some of you in your own families when growing up, you were viewed as nobodies or felt like it. Strange, different, and treated as such. You may not have felt important in your own families, but God views you differently than that. God wants a personal relationship with you, even if your families don't or didn't. Even Jesus had to ask when this family came, who is my mother and who are my brothers? 1 John 4, verses 9 and 10. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that, he, so that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Samuel is told he's tending the sheep. When he was called, he was doing his job, being faithful in the small things and doing what his father had told him to do. Tending the sheep was normally a service task. Either Jesse is not well-to-do or the family basically thought of David as a servant. A lot of great leaders were shepherds. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, to name a few. All of them learned how to be tender-hearted and to lead, to believe in, have faith in, and to trust God while they were shepherds. God told Samuel he wanted someone after his own heart. Was David considered as a man after his own heart before or after he's going to be anointed? Before. He knew and learned a lot about God while performing the task of a shepherd. He probably wrote quite a few of the Psalms while he was a shepherd. He had a lot of time to talk to God and praise him while he was a shepherd. He was a man after God's own heart when he was an unnamed son. 1 Samuel 16, verse 12 and 13. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy with beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. And Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. And Samuel arose and went to Rome. When David appeared, he came just as he was out of the field, smelly, dirty, and in his work clothes. His brothers were already dressed in their finest. They were there. God rejected them. 
Samuel had to be wondering when God told him this is the one. How? He is just a boy. But Samuel anoints him with the oil, and just like Samson in his day, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily from that day forward. All of this took place in front of his brothers, who had to be wondering, well, what the heck is going on? Why is he anointed and not them? And this is the first time David's name is mentioned in Scripture. Samuel knows there is nothing he can do to make David the king. All of that would be in God's hands. 1 Samuel 16, verses 14 and 15. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. Saul's servants then said to him, Behold now, an evil spirit from God is terrorizing you. Remember, Saul started out as a humble person who did not know what a king was supposed to do. But over a short period of time, Saul began to live for Saul, placing himself over God. God gave Saul exactly what he wanted. All this time, God's spirit had been talking to him, trying to get him to do what was right. And yet Saul continued to do what Saul wanted to do. When a person rebels and rejects God continuously, after a while, God will say, fine, I'll leave you alone. There is enough of God's spirit for everyone, so don't think that the spirit just transferred from him to David. And since God can do no evil, he would not have sent an evil spirit to taunt or terrorize him. Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23. But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. When we have the fruit of the Spirit in us, this is what will be evident in our lives. What would happen if you remove that fruit? What would you become? When God is not in us, something will fill the void. A good example can be found in Matthew 12, verses 43 and 45. Now when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself. And they go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. When the fruit of the spirit is not in us, what is usually there? Misery, anger, mean-spiritedness, hate, no self-control, and bitterness. When this happens, a person might not realize that they are this way, but others around them would be able to see it from the, and experience what it is that you go out or by your actions. Saul's servants noticed it immediately and told him about it. God will not remove his spirit from us. That's what we're told in 2 Corinthians 1, verses 21 and 22. It is God who enables us, along with you, to stand firm for Christ. He has commissioned us and he has identified us as his own by placing the Holy Spirit in our hearts as the first installment that guarantees everything he's promised us. During Saul and David's time, they were under the original covenant. 
For all believers in Christ, we are under the new covenant. God promises us as believers. The Holy Spirit will not be removed from us. 1 Samuel 16, 16. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you. Let them seek a man who is a skillful player on a harp. And it shall come about when the evil spirit of God is on you, that he shall play the harp with his hand, and you will be well. I find this really interesting. When his servants recognize, well, Saul, you're just not yourself. You're being tortured by an evil spirit. And instead of asking him if they should go and get Samuel, the man of God, to see if he could figure out what's going on, to do if he could do anything to ease the suffering, they don't ask for that. They say, hey, maybe we should go and find us a musician who could play for him, possibly taking his mind off of what his problem is. Saul tells them to do this thing that they suggested. 1 Samuel 16, 18. Then one of the young men said, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is a skillful musician, a mighty man of valor, a warrior, one prudent in speech, and a handsome man, and the Lord is with him. I don't know how many years, if any, has passed since Samuel has anointed David. If no years have passed, then this servant has just told Saul about a young man who is around 15 to 16 years old, who may have been a really good musician, but a man of valor and a warrior? I don't know how many battles or men he would have fought at such a young age. My guess would be none. If we look at the life of a shepherd, though, they face all kinds of danger. They would have to defend the sheep from attack from wolves, bears, and lions. Maybe a person trying to steal from them. We know that he's fought and killed both bears and lions. That's what we're told in the next chapter. I think the thing that caught Saul's attention the most, though, was, and the Lord is with him. I truly believe that Saul has been unrepentant of the sin that Samuel confronted him with. Samuel has not been around for his weekly visits to try and teach him how to be a godly king. He might even miss those conversations. It is quite possible David might just be a suitable replacement for him. Since the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, he would be led by the Spirit and have the, that great knowledge and discernment of one who is prudent in speech. 1 Samuel 16, 19. So Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son David who is with the flock. David is to be the next king, though, and just like Saul, he knows nothing about how to be one. This would be a great opportunity for him to learn all the workings of the behind-the-scenes actions, to see how the king deals with others, and to have the opportunity to get to know all the different leaders of the tribes. Jesse sends David with a gift, a donkey loaded with bread, a jug of wine, and a young goat. Now, some scholars suggest that when Jesse received that message, send me your son David, he began to be afraid that Saul had somehow got word about his being anointed to be the next king. 
and sent for him to prevent such things as happened. And this is why Jesse sent the present to pacify him. But it is more probable that the person, whoever he was that brought the message, gave him an account on what design he was sent for. 1 Samuel 16, 21. Then David came to Saul and attended him. And Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. If you remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the armor bearers and what a great privilege and honor it was to be one, especially to the king. They were trusted with the care of the weapons. They were considered close friends who a person could hold counsel with. Someone who would have, who would have your back in times of need or, or battle. That is the honor David had. Even though Saul did not know that David was anointed to be the next king, his countenance pleased him and he wanted him around. If it was true that he was a mighty man of valor, valor and a warrior, Saul would definitely want him around and near his side. After all, he has been collecting such men to surround himself with just after the battle of the Philistines. 1 Samuel 16, verses 22 and 23. Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David now stand before me, for he has found favor in my sight. So it came about whenever the evil spirit from God came to Saul, David would take the harp and play it with his hand. And Saul would be refreshed and he'd be well, and the evil spirit would depart from him. Saul had a good reason to find favor with him, maybe even respect him a little. His music was the only thing that could calm him down and as the evil spirit would temporarily leave. Only his instrumental music with his heart is mentioned. But it should seem, by the account of Josephus gives, that he added vocal music to it and sang hymns, probably divine hymns, songs of praise. Colossians 3.16 Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with songs and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Music has a tendency, a natural tendency, to compose and exhilarate the mind when it is disturbed and saddened. On some, it has a greater influence and effect than on others. And probably Saul was one of those. This passage tells us that when David played, the evil spirit would leave temporarily. I would liken this to the music our own kids listen to. When it comes on, I have to leave, even if they turn it down. Music may not work on the devil and drive him away, but it might just block the inroads to the mind, which he could use to gain access. I really don't think that spirits especially if they're evil, or Satan are around and you start singing psalms and hymns and spiritual stuff and singing and praying, it just drives them nuts. They, they, I don't think they can stand to be around it. So of course that spirit is going to flee temporarily until the stuff stops and then it's going to come back and go, oh, I don't hear it anymore. Let's go after him again. 
When the Spirit of the Lord is mightily on us, our endeavors are more successful, aren't they? Psalm 1, verses 1 through 3. Oh, the joys of those who do not follow the advice of the wicked, or stand around with sinners, or join in with mockers, but they delight in the law of the Lord, meditating on it day and night. They are like trees planted along the riverbanks, bearing fruit each season. Their leaves never wither, and they prosper in all they do. If Saul would allow him, David would be a great influence on him. Saul doesn't know that he's going to be king. He doesn't know that this is the neighbor that's way better than him. He does not know that this young man has the heart to follow God. When we give our hearts and follow God, we prosper in all we do. Let's go to prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the wonderful blessings that you give us, for the lessons that you teach us in Scripture that are so applicable even in today's times. We thank you for the blessings that you give us as we walk with you and walk in your ways. I thank you for the blessings that you give us when we stray off that path. And when we come back, you're there waiting with open arms. I thank you for the blessing that you sent your son to die for us to give us that opportunity to be with you again. I ask that we just take the opportunities throughout our days to reach out and share the blessings that you've given us. To be able to tell people what is it that has happened to you in the past when you weren't following God, when you did not know who God was, and when God showed you and you learned about him and you accepted him, how God turned that life. We have no worries. We have no, no angst. We have, there's nothing that really should bother us. And I would say 80% of the time, nothing really bothers us because when it does, we turn and give it all to you. Thank you, God, for loving me the way that you do. Thank you, God, for wanting that personal relationship. Let us enjoy the rest of the time that we have. All this we ask in your name. Amen.